You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Y'all may be seated. Man, I love baptisms. They always make me cry. I I kept it together, though, today. So, Um, But what a sweet thing we get to participate in as a community to get to surround our friends and um, support them. But what a sweet, special morning this has been. So thank you for joining us here this morning. Um, If I don't know you, my name is Gabby. I am the pastoral apprentice um, here at Midtown. Um, So if you come back next week, if this is your first time joining us, I will not be the one standing here. But thanks for being here this morning to... um, to, to have me. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we are continuing on in our sermon series, When Things Fall Apart. Um, we're, we're going through the book of Jeremiah. Um, and I'm going to start, I want to imagine that you all have had an opportunity, it's been presented to you, um, that you've been given this opportunity to purchase this house. There it is. Yeah, nice, green, dreamy. I just like imagine myself like these big big windows, like I just I have this like really luxurious couch and I've got coffee and a book. In in my mind it's raining. This is this is my idea of peace. I don't know if that's peaceful for you, but that sounds really lovely to me. So you've given this opportunity to purchase this home. Money's not an issue, you know, you, you've got it covered. So would you purchase this house? Now a couple important things um, to know about this house. Um, it's located outside of the city of Kiev, um, Ukraine. And just outside of um, the borders, um, Russian soldiers are occupying it. You likely will never be able to sit in this home with a cup of coffee and reading a book. And if you were to be able to visit this home, um, it probably won't look like that. So, would you purchase this house? My guess is probably not. Uh, Purchasing a home in a land at war would be an impractical purchase, um, maybe even a stupid one. So why would you invest in a place with no future? And this is the exact scenario uh, we'll be reading about in this morning's passage in Jeremiah uh, that we're continuing in on. Um, So if you want to open your Bibles with me, um, we're going to be reading from Jeremiah 32. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles available for you, for you to take home. Um, The words are also going to be behind me on the screen. But if you want to open up, we are going to be in Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 1. The word says this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I am about to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Skipping down to verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field to Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me and in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field to Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth 
from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, (laughs) in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're so peculiar sometimes that you speak to us through water, that you speak to us through land deeds. I pray that we understand um, what it is you have for us, the hope you extend to us through these peculiar objects. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jerusalem is on the verge of being captured by the Babylonian army which is not surprising to Jeremiah because this is precisely what he's been prophesying about. Um, And ironically, is the very reason he has been imprisoned. King Zedekiah locks him up, um, probably in hopes that's going to shut him up um, from saying all these things. Um, And it's in um, his imprisonment that God tells Jeremiah Jeremiah that his cousin is going to come to him and request that he purchase um, this land from him and that Jeremiah is to purchase it. And sure enough, just as God has said, Hanamel comes strolling up, asks him to purchase this land. And so what does Jeremiah do? Hands over the money, signs all the necessary paperwork, and has them sealed and protected for future reference. I don't know about you guys, this seems like a really silly time to be worrying about real estate. It seems absolutely foolish to be purchasing land at a time like this. Jeremiah knows, and I'm sure the witnesses who are there also know, Um, that Jeremiah will likely never see this land, never build anything on it, never have flourishing vineyards. But he spent what was likely the last of his money on what we might call a a foolish financial decision. Jeremiah purchases this land um, not because it was the best earthly investment, but because it was God's kingdom investment. Um, Because we're in the midst of despair there may not have appeared um, to be a future. God invests a sign of hope, a promise that there is a future in this land, and it will be restored. Why would you invest where there is no future? You wouldn't, and that's the point. That Jeremiah has been put on the record essentially saying, there is life after Babylon. There is hope for this land, for this people, even if it seems impossible right now. God is not finished yet. Through some, um, something as mediocre as a simple deed of land, a sign of hope has been given, a certainty, a promise for the future. Now I would like to offer us a definition of hope. Um, if you know me, um, you probably know that I really like to know the definition of a word because I like to understand its context and how we use the word. So, that being said, if you were to look at the word hope in the dictionary, uh, this is the definition you might find. 
a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. We use this word hope for things like, I hope I get that job, or I hope that the Cardinals win today. And when we use it, we use it in a context that we are hoping for something we're not certain of. Logically um, and mathematically, there is a chance of those things happening. Uh, But we can't be certain of that. And so we hope for it, we desire it, but we're not totally certain. And that kind of logic is important. Uh, We use that logic to decipher things all the time. Um, It's necessary. Um, But there is another kind of hope we talk about when we talk about a hope in God. And it is a hope of certainty, a hope of certainty, and a confident hope. As an example, um, I'm confident that I will remain married to my husband, Jordan, for as long as we live. That's not based on any sort of mathematical law. Um, It's based on the character of our wills. It's based on the promises we've made to each other, um, our commitment to one another, our commitment to God. Um, And we've got 10 years of evidence to back it up. (laughs) But we could be wrong, couldn't we? Both of our parents are divorced. Um, we're, not, we're not naive to that. And statistically speaking, yeah, we, we could get divorced. Just as statistically speaking, it could snow in Phoenix tomorrow. Statistically possible, yes. Um, but our confidence in that occurring is low because we understand um, our city, the weather patterns that are often typical of um, our city this coming year, and um, we trust our weather reports. Um, So just as I know my husband and he knows me, I can confidently say we'll be married until death do us part. And just as I know my God, I'm confident, I'm certain of the promises that he has um, promised us. Um, We've learned about how he's remained faithful to his promises over and over again in in Scripture, um, even despite a rebellious people. Um, Hebrews 11 it's a really good place to go if, um, if you need a reminder of God's faithfulness time and time again to a not-so-stellar group of people. We can be confident in the hope that we have in our Lord because of who he is. So this hope that we have in our God, it's one of confidence, assurance, and certainty, even in uncertain circumstances. For Jeremiah, was there certainty in this circumstance? Absolutely not. There is never certainty in destruction and in chaos when things fall apart. But Jeremiah was certain of one thing, and that was in God. Certain and confident in God's promises that if God has extended a sign of hope, that even in the uncertainty of the how and when, there was certainty in the who. Verses 8 and 9 that we read this morning, um, Jeremiah says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field. And through this small act of faith, hope is made available to the exiles, which is just so beautiful and gracious, that certainty has been injected right into uncertainty. When I think of uncertainty, um, or of not knowing when we will see something come to fruition, uh, the image that I often have in my brain, um, if you're a visual learner, um, is of fog. I associate fog with uncertainty. 
we use phrases like foggy vision or in a fog. Um, and it makes sense because if you've ever stood in fog, then you, you know that you can't really see too far off around you. Don't, you don't really know what's coming. You don't know what you're surrounded by. You can just only really see this immediate thing in front of you, if there is anything immediately in front of you. Um, it's a feeling of uncertainty, a fear of unknown. Well, I recently learned this fun fact about fog. It plays a vital role in the growth of redwood trees of Muir Woods. I've got a picture for you. If you're a visual learner, you need to see what fog looks like if you've been in Phoenix for too long. <laughs> this foggy haze um, that you can somewhat see um, that what's around, but not too far off. It's kind of spooky, perfect for Halloween. <laughs> Well, these redwood trees that have been around for almost a thousand years and are likely going to be around for another thousand, these trees that take time, they take time to grow. They've survived the heat of summers because of that fog that settles in. During the summertime when there's little rainfall, these trees, they actually absorb the fog into their roots, which is just so cool. And there's something really poetic to me about this fog, um, this, this thing that we associate with uncertainty, and it being the one thing during a difficult dry season for these trees that sustains the life of the tree during a difficult season. This fog, it's uncertain, but it's absorbed into the tree and it sustains during a season. A hope can be found in the uncertainty, life and growth, are possible. What does this mean for us here today now, as a modern people? What does this say about how we are to respond when things fall apart? Where is our hope? When I reflect on a time in my life um, when I needed hope, um, I'm reminded of a time in 2018, it was right before Jordan Nor and I moved back from Arizona, um, from Washington, D.C., and we'd had a miscarriage. And when I see this phrase, um, when things fall apart, when someone uses that phrase, that's, that is the time that I am taken to. It was a time when we were moving across the country. We were grieving, um, leaving a city and a community that we absolutely loved. We were trying to pack up a very small basement apartment <laughs> and take care of a two-year-old at the same time. And we very unexpectedly lost a tiny piece of ourselves. Grief doesn't really even feel like a big enough word to describe it. Where, where was hope in that circumstance? In the midst of this grief, um, I don't know how to describe it, but I felt, I felt peace. And I, I know that it could not have been my own because there was zero way I could have conjured that on my own. It felt like a response, like the peace was a response to the grief I was feeling. And then doesn't mean that I was okay, I was very far from okay, but I, but I had peace. It was very strange, but it was very beautiful. And so for a time, peace and grief cohabitated. I became like the tree who absorbed the fog, and I was sustained during a really difficult time. And it took time, it, it, time to be able to process, time to be able to grieve. Um, Time that still hasn't completed and might not ever in my lifetime. But there's hope that we can be met in our grief with peace, comfort, love of Christ. There's hope that I could th 
think of a message of hope and think of a miscarriage. That hope is not the absence of darkness, but rather, as put by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. So to ask our question again, if our hope is found in God, how do we respond when things are falling apart? I think Jeremiah offers a bit of insight into the answer um, for us. I think first, we're, we're called to be a little impractical sometimes. And by that, I mean we're to, called to, be, to appear as impractical. Jeremiah buys this field, and I can only imagine what some of the people who witnessed this transaction were thinking. Um, it makes me wonder about maybe the things that we do in our lives um, that might appear equivalent to purchasing a home in a war zone. Uh, there's a, a poem by Wendell Berry that was shared with me this week um, that I think beautifully depicts this. Um, just, I'm just going to share a short tidbit of it, but if you desire to read the whole thing, let me know and we can get it to you. But um, the, the piece that I wanted to share with you this morning says this. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Do something that won't compute. I love that so much. Taking time out of your two days off of work to come to a building, to sing some songs, to be in a group of people you may know well or you may barely know, um, and listen to a sermon. Is that very practical? <laughs> Last week, Clint talked about um, this um, post-Christian time that we're that we're at in the United States. Um, and taking time to come to church on a Sunday when it seems like no one else is doing that anymore seems a little impractical. Loving your neighbor is very impractical. Why would I waste my resources on someone I don't even know? I think back to the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. <laughs> How people were stockpiling toilet paper for themselves. Um, and how counterintuitive it would have been to share from one stockpile with a stranger. That would have been totally countercultural, counterproductive. It's toilet paper. <laughs> Loving your neighbor is impractical. It does not compute. We might be called to do some impractical things. And my question for us is what sort of impractical things might God be calling you to in your current place, in your current circumstance, in your current workplace, with people you know, how is God calling you to be impractical? It's my question that we might ask ourselves this week, and God might reveal it to us. Um, and then just as Jeremiah said, I knew it was the word of the Lord, so I did it. I think the, the next way that Jeremiah shows us how we respond to things falling apart is that we've got to get a witness. Such a simple thing, but it really stood out to me here that... Um, there were witnesses needed to sign these deeds. Um, and that there are a group of folks sitting in this courtyard um, witnessing this foolish thing happening. And the truth is they, they likely really didn't hear that as a sign of hope. Just as they likely didn't hear the judgment that was coming. But we still bear witness to the hope we have found. Because it is a good hope. And it burns in our bones as we... Uh, uh, a paraphrased phrase of Jeremiah earlier in the text. Um, and then we still bear witness. 
We live in a weary world in need of some hope. The world needs a community of people who, in the midst of things falling apart, can point to a sign of hope. The world needs a community that boldly hopes in their God. And we can be a tangible expression of this hope. The world needs a glimpse of our God who enters into our pain and suffering and sin and injects hope right into the middle of it, offering us his very presence, Emmanuel, God with us. And finally, um, how I think Jeremiah shows us how we are to respond is we've got to pray even when we don't understand. If we continue on reading um, in this um, passage of Jeremiah 32, uh, the oddness of this purchase, it prompts Jeremiah to pray. And he starts his prayer off with, "Ah, Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He affirms that although it seems impossible for a future in this land, that there is hope. And that nothing is too hard for our God. And we don't, when we don't understand God's will, through prayer, we might seek to understand what it means. I don't think there's anything wrong with us saying, I don't understand this, while still maintaining that we understand who God is. God responds with a summary, um, uh, responds to Jeremiah's prayer with a summary of Israel's great sin and the promise of his even greater mercy which begins with the rhetorical question from verse 27. It says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Which has a familiar ring to it found elsewhere in scripture. And so I'm going to end um, my sermon kind of like a trip to Target these days. There's a bit of Christmas tucked away. It's not quite time to bring it out yet. (laughs) But we're going to do it anyways. Because we can't talk about hope without talking about Christmas. At a time when the world uh, was dredged in darkness of sin, light made a way through a teenage girl. God promised that she would bear a son, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. To fulfill God's promises made 700 years before this encounter. And when Mary asked, "How, how could this be? How could I, a virgin... How could, I have, how could I bear a son? And she is given the very familiar response. Nothing is impossible for God. Familiar response to a peculiar sign of hope. Friends, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is our sign of hope in this world. It's the light despite all the darkness When it seems like there is no hope to be found, God speaks hope right into the mess of it as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God invested in us at a high price of Jesus. We are a land with a future. Hope is often found in the most head-scratching of ways, like the fog that rolls in over the trees. It's unexpected. Like through the sprinkling of water on a baby's head through the pregnancy of a teenage girl, through the purchase of a wasted field. Would you pray with me?